This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Bookwaves Artwaves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. There are four interviews with Tony Hillerman in the Probabilities and Bookwaves archive. The second interview with Tony Hillerman was recorded on November 8, 1993, while he was on tour for his novel, Sacred Clowns. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff. Tony Hillerman, who died in 2008 at the age of 83, was a master of the detective genre and an important writer in detailing life on the Navajo Reservation. His several novels featuring Navajo police officers Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chee have been acclaimed for their accuracy and for their ability to combine Navajo history and thought into strong plot-driven novels. Notes on information presented in the interview follow the recording. Dick, I'm going to throw it to you because you interviewed Tony Hillerman a number of years ago, and maybe you want to just do a little refresher course. First of all, you, you mentioned in our previous conversation that you had served in World War II in Europe, and right. that after the war, you had actually become a journalist rather than a fiction writer. That's true, yes. Uh-huh. It didn't occur to me that I could be a fiction writer. I never even thought of it. But then something clicked. <laughs> I think everybody who, who works as a reporter for a few years is sort of bitten by the bug. It becomes aware that there's a lot of things that a lot of truth that can't really be told in 750 words, you know. And this happened to me in a strange way uh, at a execution or a incident leading up to an execution. A, a fellow was going to the gas chamber and I was a reporter. He wanted to talk to me. The warden called me and I went out and uh, he wanted the news of his execution, he hoped, would go nationally around the country so his mother would come and recover his body and bury it in a family cemetery. And I said, well, what's your mother's name? He didn't know his mother's name. No idea. Uh, where is she from? He didn't know. He said, all I know is is um, the last time I saw her, we were living in, I think it was Bakersfield, California, I forget now, in a trailer house and she was living with a with a I forget his name doesn't matter but he was a drunk both of them were drunks and they her her live-in boyfriend had chased him away and he had been living in the garage of a friend while he went to school but it was his 12th birthday and he thought it's my 12th birthday I bet my I go home I bet they'd let me back in see and so he goes back to the trailer camp where his mother's trailer is and it's gone and he never had any contact with her. And ever since then, he'd been hunting for her, chasing, trying to find his mother, see. And in on in route, he'd been in prison several times. He'd been in, first in juvenile detention centers and then in prison. And finally, he'd graduated to the quick way to get money was frequently to kill people. And so he'd killed some people, probably about six. And he was going to the gas chamber, and, and uh, rather gladly, I think, and I go back and I write my 750 words, and I think, my God, describing the execution. I went and witnessed the execution. And you think, this is. Then I sat down and wrote a short story about it. Yes, I've read that story. It was published in a British anthology. Wait, I think it's named Culprit Two. 
the British Crime Writers Association publishes. And it was published in some magazine. I didn't even try to publish for years. It was just sort of catharsis. The same character shows up in one of my books. Which book? In uh, People of Darkness. I needed a professional killer, even though I was a police reporter. It's hard for me to believe people would do that for money, kill people for money. And I, so I'm, it, I think my readers are not going to believe these people. So then I remembered this guy. Call him Toby Small in the book, I think. No, I call him uh, Colton Wolf. He gives himself a name in the book. When you have a ready, a remembered character like that, it's <laughs> why strain the imagination coming up with one. Now, you, your journalism, you were working in Oklahoma City. Well, first Texas, then Oklahoma, and then finally New Mexico. And when you became a novelist, I believe your first novel was The Blessing Way. Right. Uh, which was a, a Navajo-oriented novel. Yeah. You then wrote a very different book, The Fly on the Wall, which is, seems to me stands totally aside from the rest of the Hillerman Oak. It does. The Fly on the Wall, My here is my strategy. I wanted to be a, a novelist, and ideally a, a, a great famous novelist. Okay, so, but I was writing, you know, I've been all my life writing short stuff. So I think, I'll write a, Mystery novel, which is shorter, and it has a framework. If I can do that and finish it, see, and you know, then I will take the next leap and I'll write War and Peace in Potawatomi County, <laughs> see, and uh, become famous. So I wrote The Blessing Way, and to the amazement of everybody, I guess it got it was published. And then I wrote The Fly on the Wall, which was a germ of the idea I had for this big, important you know, the great American novel, turned out to be not the great American novel. You know, it it was just barely good enough to stay in print. But it has stayed in print. It's been in print now. 20. It's still around. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. and, and I like it. So then, by the time I finished it, I was thinking, I should go back and do the Navajo thing right because there's a lot of things wrong with the blessing way. Now I know how to do it better, see. So I went back and did the, the, the uh, Dance All the Dead which was better. But then I could begin seeing, well, I was more and more caught up in the Navajo culture. And it became sort of a mission, I thought. People should understand these. I mean, people should, this, this culture is worth knowing about. There's something valuable here. And I don't have a PhD in anything, much less anthropology. Don't have any credentials to write anthropology. And besides, nobody reads it anyway. But your background goes way back with that. You told me uh, on our previous occasion that you had been just about the only white child in the school you attended. Well, I was one of the f relatively few. It was St. Mary's Academy, which was a boarding school for Potawatomi girls, see, uh, run by the Sisters of Mercy and the Benedictines and out in the boonies in Potawatomi County. And uh, But around it are this little cluster of poor boy farms, farmers who'd moved in there because it was a church there, see, Catholics. So they, the sisters let some of us attend as day students. And there were about, I guess, about eight boys, mostly kinfolks of mine. So, yeah, it was, our neighbors were Potawatomis and Seminoles. This was uh, in... in uh, Oklahoma, and the area had been allotted, a lot of it had been allotted to the 
the citizen band Potawatomis and Seminoles and some Sac and Fox, I believe. Yeah, a few Blackfoot Indians. So my friends and my neighbors and the kids I played with were Indians. So that this this is not an alien culture to you. This is, You were immersed oh, in this. The alien culture to me is the Princeton Alumni Association. <laughs> Urbane, urban people. The English department faculty meeting when I joined the faculty uh, at the University of Mexico when I, was a, when, when I was a graduate student. These are the strange ones. Ivy Leaguers who grew up with a silver spoon firmly gripped between their teeth and, and went to Philip Exeter Academy and onward and onward and, and never for one moment had a doubt about where the next meal was coming from. Those are, those are the people that I find fascinating and hard to understand, but the Navajos are just like I was. You know, they grew up poor, and if it rained, they weren't going to be able to get out because the roads were muddy. And every morning, the first thing you did was look at the sky and hope it would rain, you know. I think they spotted me right away as, as a country bumpkin, you know, kindred soul. The, the kids did. The Navajos did, yeah. When I first started going out there. Richard Walensky. You have two Navajo detectives, Leaphorn and Chi. They started out separately and moved together. First, why did you start with Leaphorn? What was it about him that attracted you? He's someone who's not particularly involved in Navajo culture. Well, in the first draft of that book, he wasn't particularly involved in the plot either. He, <laughs> When I first wrote that book, the anthropology professor was very dominant character. And the cop just came in as a foil to a provider of information, you know. Then when I when it dawned on me, when it turned out that Harper and Roll was going to publish it, wow, see, I mean, uh, imagine that. And and, and uh, by now I've, I've become aware of, they wanted me to do some rewriting. So I took advantage of that to beef up the role of Leaphorn a lot. The second part of that question was how come Chi? Yeah, yeah. What happened? What? Two things with Chi. One, I had optioned the film rights to uh, Dance Hall of the Dead to uh, an outfit, Hollywood, you know, movie production company, obviously. And uh, while they didn't exercise the option, they kept paying on it until they'd paid enough to buy the television rights. It turns out the way the contract written now, they now have forever the television rights to Joe Leaphorn. Okay. So motivation A is resentment and greed, see? Okay. So motivation B is art. I decided to take Leaphorn and put him on a checkerboard reservation, the east side, where the Navajos are all mixed together with Lagunas and Acomas and, and white folks and Mennonites and Catholics and, and Southern Baptists and Native American cult people, you know, and didn't work because Leaphorn was, as you described him, he was too sophisticated and cynical and, and, and it, it wasn't coming off. So I think I need a young, more romantic, more traditional Navajo fellow. And the young Navajos tend to be more traditional than those Leaphorn's generation raised in boarding schools. The young kids raised in the Hogan and get on the school bus. Leaphorn's generation was hauled away to boarding school. See, they didn't speak very good Navajo. So I needed a guy who'd be impressed by this mix of culture. So along came Jim Chi, 
So the, does that mean uh, interrupting this the narration? Does that mean this kind of a conservative trend going on in the Navajo Nation mm -hmm. right now? No. There was a long period in time when when the Bureau of Indian Affairs separated young, not just Navajos, young uh, Indians from their families and put them in boarding schools and just tried to assimilate them into the mainstream culture. They didn't want them speaking Sioux or Navajo. They didn't learn much about their culture because that's the years when you do learn about your culture. Okay, so there's a, guys my age, Navajo's my age, mostly were educated in boarding school. And they have, they tend to have, if you can generalize, a more limited vocabulary. They know, they know Navajo and speak it well, but they don't know words for a lot of things. Young, when the BIA quit doing that, now these kids stay home. They learn their mothers and their fathers and their uncles' knees, and they learn the nuances of the language, and they learn their culture better. Chi and Leaphorn get together in Skinwalkers, and since then there's been five books they've been in. One question I'm always asking authors who write more than one series character is what would happen if their two characters meet? Well, you did that. How was it? How was writing Skinwalkers and watching them meet? The reason I did that, I think writers tend to be very thin-skinned. We, we, we dote on praise, see? But if somebody has the audacity to point out a flaw, we, it really hurts. So I'm signing books in, in Baltimore, I think it was, and this lady says, asked me, she said, why did you change the name of your character? I said, uh, uh, you mean, why did he, well, you know, I'm flustered. She says, yeah, why, how come, how come uh, Jim Chi? And so I explained it to her and she said, well, t I can't tell them apart. You know, the dagger right to the heart. <laughs> and I couldn't get this out of my mind. And finally I thought, you know, have I been kidding myself about this all these years? All these months anyway. And so I thought, I'll just put both of them in the same book and just see. Thank God I owe that woman a great debt because it worked beautifully, I think. I mean, it sure worked for me because people started buying the books a lot better. And I think it made better books. The books take place over a fairly short period of time because Chi is still a young man and he has been trying to be, um, you said, a Hatali, a medicine man for quite a while now. How long has it been <laughs> in, in, in book time, do you think? You know, that's an interesting question. And I think about that once in a while and I'd say, I don't know, eight or ten years, eight years. He also needs to get promoted. I had him promoted once to sergeant, I think. But then I explained later it was an it was one of those acting assignments. In 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 fictional time, what, probably not long, five or six or seven years. It's a fairly fairly brief period. One of the many problems one takes on by writing using series characters. You have to also you have to remember all this stuff. Do you find that that the characters? age and change as the books progress, or are they static and just moving through the world? I am pretty sure they change. Uh, I think Leaphorn changes. Leaphorn is more like I am. His, his, I think I would really like Leaphorn. You know, he's my kind of guy. He thinks the way I do. Uh, I think he's gotten old and crockety as, and wise, right, as I have. <laughs> <laughs> as time goes by. She became sort of, when I was trying to create him, I was teaching. It was back in those great days when 
when the tear gas was drifting through the halls and you guys had more of it than we did, but we had, we've got bloody spots on the pavement. And students came to class. They weren't interested in A's. They were interested in learning something. And, and they weren't so doggone sure that you were any smarter than they were either. So you, it was a great time to teach. And, and, uh, and kids were, romanticism was a flying through the air and people were reading Herman Hesse. If you can believe it, remember? I remember. I remember. <laughs> anyway, so I, she sort of became a, a con a, amalgamam of those great kids who were romantic and idealistic and hard to deal with. And now that the years have gone by, are those kids bitter and cynical over the outcome of their movement? An amazing number of them are working for Senator Pete Domenici, the great. Republican conservative. <laughs> Curious. <laughs> oh, I remember there's one kid that I wrote letters to his draft board how many times. He was a dyed-in-the-wool liberal and keep him from being drafted. And now he is way more conservative than Richard Nixon. A couple of questions about sacred clowns. You have stated in the past that you research Absolutely thoroughly. Is the material on Cheyenne Autumn the film? Is that true? <laughs> Cheyenne, I think I've got the wrong director, don't I? I have John Ford directing it. It was John but Ford. Was it? I've got a letter telling me it was somebody else. But anyway, I hadn't seen it. In fact, I'm not sure I'd ever seen it, but I'd heard of it. So I went down and rented a, a copy of Cheyenne Autumn. And I put it in my old VCR. And I see the first beginning scenes with Richard Widmark and et cetera. And then that confounded machine, you know, it's an old tape. It all goes bluey and I fish it out and take it back to the dealer and he gives me a second copy, put it in, same thing happens. This time he says either didn't have another one or wasn't willing to trust me with it. So my plan was to use a lot more of that shine autumn, see, but my VCR screwed me up. But I did actually go look at it, and it is a matter of fact that I'm not sure if that Gallup Drive-In still exists even, but they used to bring it back, and the, and the Navajos would go and just have a great time. Because it's the uh, Cheyenne speak in Ma Navajo, and they're not responding to what's being actually said on the screen. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they're all kinfolks, see. The Navajos playing the role of Cheyennes, and the I had a Navajo tell me once, he, when he was a kid, he went to work in a gas station, he and a friend in Denver, and they went to see a Tarzan movie. And he says, here comes a Tarzan and Jane have escaped, and they're hiding in the bulrushes, and here comes a canoe full of cannibals paddling, chasing them, see, down the river. And the cannibals are singing a, ch a chant from the Blessing Way ceremony. He said they speeded up the soundtrack a little bit, but there it was. You also, in your book, have uh, two other things I'd like to discuss. One of the Lincoln Canes. Did those exist? Right, yeah. Abraham Lincoln had, uh, I don't remember the number anymore, had these canes. Some of the tribes, as you know, joined the Confederates, and uh, there was a lot of concern about the West, and, and Lincoln had a man out here who, I forget his name too, but it doesn't matter, but yeah, he suggested to Lincoln that he follow the example of the King Charles, the Spanish king who did the same thing. And Lincoln had these canes made and 
sent them out to New Mexico, and they presented them to the Pueblos. And, and most of them still have them. They're symbols of the, the authority of the governor. They also have their Spanish canes, which date back to the 17th century. How did you hear about these? As I say, I'm 68 years old, and I've lived out there since 1952, so, and I'm interested in this sort so of stuff. You've you've known about the canes. Were you were you yeah. kind of keeping them in the back of your mind for some mystery down yeah, there? Yeah, I was. You, a, a writer is sort of like a bag lady with the stolen grocery cart in front of him. He goes around picking up things, saving them, thinking this should be useful someday. Remember this, you know. So you got a whole grocery cart full of those things. The other thing is uh, there's a controversy over a waste dump. It's kind of in the background there. Is that a real controversy? No. Well, yeah, th- not there, but the the uh, the the uh, Mescalero Apaches have a a leader a leader named Wendell Chino who's an old man and and a real nobody pushes Wendell Chino. So Wendell became aware apparently that the Gravy train was roaring down the tracks. All the, you know, the fear of nuclear, fear of toxic is loaded with money. And all the white guys were getting all the money, right? So he comes up with a plan to have a study made of having a nuclear waste dump done somewhere in Mescalero. Get some of this gravy. And it scares the living hell out of the Alamogordo, the Chamber of Commerce, see? So they oppose it. So Wendell says, okay, then I'll shut down the ski basin. So then the Chamber of Commerce said, well, maybe we better not oppose it. Say, rescind their order opposing it. And and Wendell, the Apaches are actually getting a large amount of money, which they need. I don't think anybody seriously thinks they're ever going to put a waste dump in. You know, they never do. They just pay people to study it. So then the doggone, our, our Republican senator pulled a plug in Washington and cut the money off, which shows that the great white father can still put his foot down heavy on the Indians. Pete Domenici. You have um, characters participating in the fictional Tano ceremony, but there are real ceremonies similar to the one, uh, yeah. the sacred clown ceremony that, of sacred clowns? Mm-hmm. Very much like ones you'll see in, for example, San Felipe or... Santa Domingo or even Zuni. or Zuni, not so much, but yeah. Uh, an interesting conversation toward the end of the book where somebody commenting to Chi, I think, says that, you know, all the Indians are all taciturn, but you Navajos, you don't shut up. You keep talking. Is that true? It's true in a way. The reputation Navajos get from being taciturn is in their origin stories, their book of Genesis. Most of them have a kind of a, a understanding of, of evolution that you don't find in the, in our book of Genesis. And one of the key things in this evolution is the gift of language. And, the, and every Navajo is taught from childhood that words are very powerful and they're not to be used lightly. And so they have a, tr- a f- tradition of Long pauses before they say something. They, they organize their thoughts, they organize paragraphs, and they'll say it. And people will listen. No interruptions. And then they will stop, and there'll be a pause while the audience determines whether the guy has something else saying he's organizing or whether he stopped, see. So white people never give them a chance to say anything, see, because they we have this notion that radio 
has it, certainly, but all of us do, that silence is not golden but should be immediately broken with speech. But some of the most talkative people I know are Navajos will talk your arm off. But you've got to let them finish before you answer. Yeah. You can't stop them. Right. This is a fascinating notion. We're all, I guess, sort of amateur cultural anthropologists we, around yeah. here. And that in different cultures, it, it isn't really that people say different things, but the whole conversational style is different. And when people from different cultures encounter one another, they may be unable to converse effectively, not just because they don't use the same language, but they don't use the same style. Exactly. I got a call from a teacher at Canyon Cito Reservation, one of the fragmented off reservations. Somebody had told her that maybe I could help her. She called me and I said, what's the problem? She said, well, I'm teaching here and half the students are Lagunas and half of them are Navajos. And I don't have any trouble with the Lagunas. I get along fine with them. But I have trouble with the Navajos. And I said, what kind of trouble? She said, they're, they're so sneaky. I say, what causes you to think they're sneaky? She said, they will never look at me when I'm talking to them. And I say, young lady, I say, that tells me that you have in your classroom some very polite, well-brought-up Navajos because traditionally the Navajo child is taught that you, if you look, at, look into the face of someone talking to you, you're challenging him or her, and you're, you, you don't do it unless you think they're lying to you. One does not look at the face of the speaker. One looks down or looks away and listens, see. So these are just polite, well-brought-up kids. And in our culture, the polite way is, look me in the eye yeah. when I talk uh -huh. to you. You have a character, uh, in fact, a woman who, when a policeman goes to her door, virtually shuts the door on the policeman, and she says, well, maybe the problem was she thought you were being rude. Sure. Uh-huh. Somebody should have told that teacher that, and she said thought so too, you know. We should have a, before teach, kids or people are sent out to teach other cultures, they should understand the culture. How do you think Chi and Leaphorn will get along? We were talking a moment ago about the, quote, backstory of the, the novels, which is uh, what occurs and how the characters change a little bit or change somewhat. And their relationship, they seem to be getting a little bit closer as time goes on. At yeah. least they're understanding each other better. I try to recreate reality. You know, and reality, and the way it works out, I think she naturally would admire, in a way, Leaphorn and wonder if he really deserved his reputation. I mean, and Leaphorn, looking down on she from eight years of age and experience, would see in him an intelligent young man with promise, but he's so damned likely to screw things up by not following the rules. You know, I think that'd be the natural. I just try to write it that way. Do you think she doesn't follow the rules? Clearly he doesn't. He doesn't in this book. He he go takes three days off without telling anybody. He, uh, you know, well, he <laughs> doesn't arrest somebody who's supposed to arrest. <laughs> he leaves He leaves a tape in a tape recorder. <laughs> he leaves a tape in a tape recorder. Tony Hillerman, in, in your book, so many of them, it seems to me that there is a 
great dichotomy. You could look at them almost out of your left eye and your right eye and see different books. Through one eye, the life that you describe is very real and very physical. People live on the earth. There's dirt under their fingernails and dust in their clothing and such. On the other hand, I feel that there is a, a profound spirituality in the books. And I, I hope I'm not getting impolitely personal to say, I think I detect that in Tony Hillerman. Well, I, I think you're, you're astute. One of the reasons, probably the basic reason I'm attracted to Navajo and, and also the Pueblo people is because I myself am a, a person to whom religion is important or my faith in God is important. In modern America, it's hard to find people whose belief in, in, the, in metaphysics actually affects the way they live. I mean, their belief is so strong that it shapes their culture. Well, the Navajos, their culture is shaped by their belief, and the same is true of the Pueblos. I admire people who do not allow their intelligence to be stopped at the margins of physics. Well, <laughs> I once watched a BBC reporter interviewing a one of their famous astronomers who was describing the Big Bang Theory, creation of the universe. And she said, uh, what is your theory about this, what existed before the Big Bang? He said, uh, young woman, he frowned. He said, young woman, that's a non-question. And it is a non-question to much of academia, for example. But it's there are some people who don't allow their intelligence to stop there. They go beyond that. And they look for a solution to mysteries. They, I love those kind of people. And they're scarce. Yeah, I, 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 I plead guilty to being a Christian who would find life very difficult, I think, if I weren't. But you're not a Christian proselytizer. Uh, again, I detect in, in these books of Navajo life and other Native life a great respect for other religions, other yeah. views of the universe. I have a theory that God inspired different cultures and different people in different ways. And he inspired us, whether we be Hopi or, or Hillerman, to understand that he loves us. I was on a panel with Maya Angelou in the New York, that New York Times thing. Somebody in the audience said, did you have a turning point in your life, a time when things changed for you? And she said, of course. I was 17, and it dawned on me that God loved me. And I thought, exactly. I was a little older than that. When William Kennedy was a guest here some weeks ago, he was talking about different kinds of books and different sorts of attitudes and the difference, which, which is a recurring almost a litany on this program, the difference, if any, between mainstream literature and the popular entertainment categories, mysteries, science fiction, and so forth. With regard to your own books, would you address that question? I would. Mainstream fiction, it seems to me, is, 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 uh, turns on the fascination we have with fellow human beings and the way their character develops and their life changes. And it's hard to do, hard as hell to do, to write that stuff. 
I mean, to make it come through. Okay, it is easier, at least it's easier for me to hang that, what little I do with it, on a, on a tail. Quickly problem solved in a few days. I don't know. I, I, I have started a novel long time ago, years ago, uh, you know, the, the Holden Caulfield in Pottawatomie County novel, you know, uh, the Rites of Passage novel. I wasn't good enough to write it. I might be now. I don't know. Some mysteries, you can't tell the difference between mainstream and mystery. Lawrence Block, uh, his mysteries are that way. So several other people. Scott Turow, his uh, first book. I haven't read his second one, but his first book was certainly mainstream, but it was a mystery. I never was much for putting things in categories. You think then that these, the boxes and the, and the, the dividing partitions are really artificial? There's a, how do you put it, a spectrum. Over here is a novel of detection, the, the locked room mystery, the, the Agatha Christie type thing, where the characters really simply are types and and nothing should be allowed to get in the way of the mystery because the mystery is why, is fascinating and it's why people read it and they're really intellectual exercises and then you move from that extreme to what i guess you'd call crime novels one a good example just out is is a book the novel's named the late man it's written i can't think of the guy's name it's his first novel he's a he's a it's he's from wichita kansas and he was i think a newspaper i think he taught journalism or something at wichita state it's a damn good novel it seems to concern a serial killing but it doesn't really concern a serial that's simply in the background it is a it is a fascinating piece of work and I, here i am i can't think of the guy's name right where does tony hillerman fit in that spectrum? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm probably in the gray area between mainstream and mystery. I have people say, my, tell me that right away that, you know, by page nine, I know who did it, you know, so I'm not apparently satisfying the whodunit fans. I think more that I'm writing, why do it? Why did it happen? But I don't know if that makes you mainstream. You mentioned earlier this not very happy experience with Hollywood over the rights to Joe Leaphorn. Is there any prospect now, whether it's for Jim Chi or any other Tony Hillerman work, to be done and to be done right? To done, yeah, there are. I got I bought back Leaphorn out of slavery for twenty one thousand dollars, I think, which really makes you feel like a total idiot, you know. And 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 then subsequently. Uh, Robert Redford optioned all of them. Uh, one of them, his plan was to make three series of three films. A film was made of The Dark Wind, which apparently, I gather, did not meet his standards and was not released in theaters. And, uh, uh, in fact, he asked me if I wanted my name taken off of it. So I'm pretty sure he didn't like it. Uh, in fact, I know he didn't like it. And oh, but Okay, but now it's sort of leaked out in the videotape stores about a week ago. It was made two years ago. Now he has a script written on A Thief of Time, and uh, I'm told that he will direct it himself to get it done right uh, next summer. A number of people said that Thunderheart reminded them of Tony Hillerman. Did Thunderheart, did you have anything to do with that at all? No, I haven't even seen it. I go rarely go to movies. I buy the small popcorn size, and when it's exhausted, I'm I'm out of patience and 
25 minutes have gone by and they, <laughs> I, I get up and leave. And so I just quit buying. I hard, almost never go to movies. Well, I, I would love you to have sit there next to me uh, next time I see Cheyenne Autumn tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any future Tony Hillerman novels uh, that leave the Navajo world and come back perhaps to the world of the fly on the wall? There is a novel contracted for, which is called Untitled Asian Novel, which goes back all the way to when the Belgians pulled out of the Belgian Congo and Stanleyville was reduced to total chaos with paratroopers dropping in and mercenaries fighting and one of the tribes issuing themselves ghost shirts like the Sioux did, bulletproof shirts, and civilization coming to an end. And way back then, it was in the 50s, I, I was going to take an average American and average guy, man, Joe Pilgrim, put him in that chaos and write a story about him trying to accomplish his purpose and survive. And I didn't do it. And now, now of course, nobody remembers Belgian Congo. And now I'm going to, I'm started it. It takes place in Southeast Asia in 1975, two years after we pulled out and the spring when Cambodia collapsed and the South Vietnamese government threw in the towel and chaos there. So it started and, and uh, nobody's very enthusiastic about me doing this. Certainly my publisher's not. But I'm going to write it, and if it works, I'll be a pretty good book. It's going to make me write better than I've been writing, I think. The film The Dark Wind, starring Lou Diamond Phillips as Chi and Fred Ward as Joe Leaphorn, was directed by Errol Morris, who became better known as the director of documentaries such as The Fog of War. It can be rented via Apple or Amazon. The second season of Dark Winds is based on the novel People of Darkness and features the character based on the killer that Tony Hillerman met in prison. A Thief of Time became a film in 2003 with Adam Beecher's Chi and Wes Studi as Joe Leaphorn. The book Tony Hillerman talks about as an example of a literary mystery is The Late Man by James Preston Gerard, which was published in September 1993. The non-Navajo novel Tony Hillerman was writing at the time of the interview, Finding Moon, was published in 1996 and is discussed in the third Tony Hillerman interview from 1997, which is yet to be digitized. Ann Hillerman has continued the Leaphorn Chi series, and the next book, Lost Birds, will be published in April 2024. You've been listening to an interview with the late Tony Hillerman, who died in 2008 at the age of 83. It was recorded November 8, 1993 in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for the novel Sacred Clowns. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky Radio Shows on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. (laughs) 